Welcome to Conversations with Sustain and You, a Sustain and You podcast series with Northwestern leadership around all things sustainability. I'm Greg Kozak, Director of Sustainability at Northwestern University. For those of you unfamiliar, Sustain and You is Northwestern's university-wide program that aims to engage students, faculty, and staff in reducing Northwestern's impact on the environment by incorporating sustainability into our campus operations and culture. To learn more, visit our website at northwestern.edu slash sustainability. And now enjoy Conversations with Sustain and You, a Sustain and You podcast. With emerging evidence that many disadvantaged communities in the United States are being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, today's podcast will focus on the indirect but connected theme of the unequal impact of environmental degradation and climate change on low-income, minority, and marginalized communities. This is installment two of three, focused on the topic of environmental justice and the intersection of sustainability, equity, and environmental quality. Today, we are joined by Associate Professor Abigail Forstner. Abigail directs health, environment, and science reporting in Medill's graduate programs where students report on high-impact stories from around the globe. Forstner covered environment, science, and the arts for the Chicago Tribune and numerous other publications before joining the faculty at Northwestern, her alma mater. She is completing her fourth book, this one on climate and culture along the unruly Mississippi River and the ancient American city of Cahokia, across from modern-day St. Louis. Abigail, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being here today. Thanks so much, Greg, for inviting me to be part of the Sustain and You podcast series, and this is just such an important topic. No, my, my pleasure, and, and thanks again. Um, so I'm just going to start off with a, a sort of background question. Can you talk a little bit about your background and your work at Northwestern? Sure. Um, as a journalist, I wrote for years for the Chicago Tribune and took on the environmental coverage for the regional sections of the paper. And one of the first big stories I uncovered was about unscrupulous developers building houses in floodplains. Uh, and uh, the trick there was to channelize the nearby river, meaning taking all the kinks out of it. So when it rained, you would be sending all the water downstream to little idyllic places like uh, Salt Creek in DuPage County, where houses had stood for years and suddenly they were under six feet of water. There were just so many issues like that, uh, issues about Superfund sites. And I'm not sure as I started covering them that I was thinking of them in terms of environmental justice. I was thinking about people getting hurt and exploited and holding someone accountable. And, uh, you know, that is what got me interested in environmental justice. I was already working on these topics and writing books when I came uh, home, so to speak, to teach at Northwestern. And teaching in the health, environment, and science specializations was just a dream come true. One of the first things that uh, we did was uh, we were invited to join the Carnegie Knight News 21 initiative uh, that involves several universities. And we took up different critical topics for the 2008 election. At Northwestern, we focused on the high stakes for the environment, which was my area of interest. And I was, I was leading our participation. Uh, and climate change already topped the risks for the highest stakes of all. We shared our work with the Comer Family Foundation, which was and is funding a vast network of climate research to mentor a new generation of climate scientists. And generous grants from the foundation for the last 10 years have allowed Medill to mentor and train the next generation of environmental communicators. 
And through our newsroom, we report on a lot of environmental justice stories in Chicago and across the world. Well, today we are going to chat with you about your unique path and your perspective on environmental justice. And, you know, this is the third and, and often overlooked pillar of sustainability is the sort of people slash social element. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to get your perspective on this. And so my first question is, in a sentence, what does environmental justice mean to you? And what, what got you interested in the topic of environmental justice and this interplay of sustainability and equity? Well, you know, I think of environmental justice as giving everyone access to the same quality of clean air, pure drinking water, safe housing conditions, and sustainable lifestyles, meaning no community becomes a dumping ground for another. Um, For a journalist, Mm -hmm. meeting with a lot of environmental activists in the communities, uh, as a journalist myself and um, with my students now, to meet with them means more than just taking an interest. It means reporting their stories and hopefully making a difference. Yeah, I love what you just said about certain communities and areas not becoming a dumping ground. And, you know, you see climate change and environmental justice are, in my view, a result of a society that values some lives and not others. I'm curious to hear your perspective on how the current COVID pandemic has really shown a light on this issue of environmental justice. And specifically, how is the fact that Black and Latinx communities are at a greater risk of getting COVID-19 and suffering severe illness from it linked to environmental injustices? Well, there are a lot of links. Um, The disproportionate suffering and death, that tragedy in the Black and Latinx communities uh, due to COVID-19 isn't something that's coded in human genes but it's encrypted in deeply rooted social and racial inequity. And, uh, and environmental justice is a big player in that. I grew up on the Northwest side of Chicago. And when I go to Pilsen mm-hmm. or Little Village or the Southeast side with my students, I see the same blocks of bungalows and two flats and little frame houses with backyards that I saw in my neighborhood but the background of industry, smokestacks, trucks everywhere, and acrid smells is very different from where I grew up. Um, Black and Hispanic people disproportionately live in highly industrialized areas exposed to air pollutants. Little Village on the Southwest side is one of the neighborhoods where the EPA's toxic release inventory, you know, documents the heavy pollution load. Um, The neighborhood is about 60% Latinx and 35% Black. And one ongoing initiative of this very active Little Village Environmental Justice Organization is actually called the Fight for the Right to Breathe. People in Little Village and other neighborhoods exposed to high pollution levels tend to suffer from higher rates of respiratory illnesses. And that, as we know, raises the risk of illness and serious illness if you get COVID-19. In fact, parts of Little Village continue to have the highest rate of uh, COVID-19 cases in the city. Then, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, the developer of the shuttered Crawford coal-fired power plant decided to skyrocket a demolition of the old smokestack still standing at the site. That, despite community objections, um, and the demolition spewed a cloud of dust across blocks of Little Village. The Justice Organization had fought so long and so hard to get rid of the power plant. And it finally closed in 2012, 
with hundreds of others uh, across the country when the Obama administration took away basically the grandfathered air pollution entitlements for these plants. Um, one of my graduate students did a really wonderful and in-depth story this spring um, about uh, the scourge of this demolition and the aftermath and the women leading the environmental justice group tried to stop it. Um, the community environmental groups here and on the southeast side and in cities and neighborhoods across the country can chalk up some big wins against daunting odds, um, as well as losses, as well as lots of ongoing struggles. And they stay ever vigilant. Um, I really admire what they're doing. Um, then, then think about the food deserts and COVID-19, another form of environmental injustice. Hundreds of thousands of people in the Chicago area live in food desert, meaning that they live in places that have little access to affordable, healthy foods with lots of fruits and vegetables that supermarkets offer. Food deserts don't have supermarkets. And the lack of access to basics in your own environment is just a fulcrum for injustice. It means more travel and extra costs um, added to the COVID-19 threat and in, an, uh, in a time of high unemployment. Food deserts just make it harder for people to have healthy diets and poor diets raise the risk of diabetes and high blood pressure, other risk factors for COVID-19. Yes, there are supermarkets in Bronzeville and amid much fanfare, Walmart opened a store in uh, Auburn, Gresham, Whole Foods opened one in Inglewood and, and grants are bringing groceries into some areas. But as the Chicago Defender reported, you can search 79th Street from Lakeshore Drive all the way to Pulaski without finding a single supermarket, a burden along too many other major city arteries on the south and west side. Um, determined community groups, neighborhood garden volunteers, and farmers markets help fill the gap. But uh, you know, COVID-19 makes these kinds of efforts harder uh, everywhere right now. Um, again, lack of access in your environment can also mean lack of access to health care and health insurance, other huge factors linked to social inequities and environmental injustice. Um, shuttered health clinics and uh, hospitals have been disproportionately high in Black and Latinx communities. So, you know, those are just a few of the links. You know, in my initial introduction to this topic, I mentioned the indirect relationship yeah. between COVID, but there's so many, they're so interconnected, right? So if we could then shift to the, the sort of connection with climate change, how, how are environmental injustice and social inequity already evident in the growing toll of climate change? Okay. Um, well, the poorest people and the poorest countries on earth will suffer and are already suffering the most from climate change. Um, I've traveled with undergraduate students to stay for a few days on the San Blas Islands uh, for two years in a row. Um, the islands are off the coast of Panama and the Guna people live there. Uh, some 30,000 Guna seafarers live uh, on the islands and they're watching their homelands go underwater as the Atlantic rises. Many have already moved to the Guna Highlands on uh, the Panama mainland where the Gunayala province territories rise into those rugged volcanic spines of Panama. But we stayed on the islands and our guides took us to small, beautiful Pelican Island where a traditional thatched roof house straddles a shallow ridge right on the shore. 
Um, the house once stood in the middle of the island when Alberto Nunez Davies came to live there 15 years ago to manage the family tourist trade. And that's a booming business for the Guna now. As we talked, we sipped coconut milk through straws inserted in holes bored through the coconut husks. It was pretty idyllic. Um, tourists began to arrive with their beach blankets and coolers and volleyball nets. And the Nunez Davis, Davies family um, uh, sells them sodas and beers and the coconuts with the straws. Later, they lay food along a table beneath a, beneath a thatched uh, cabana. And so we asked um, Nunez Davies about the rising seas and, and these predictions that everyone will have to move. And he said, we have faith that that day will never come. The Guna navigate the choppy ocean waters in small, colorfully painted fishing boats because they know every current. Um, they've lived on the islands for hundreds of years since they abandoned Colombia and southern Panama to escape the Spanish invaders. They, they won independence as a province from U.S. back Panama in 1925. After those kinds of victories, Vinyas Davies and his still need one more, a victory over the injustice of climate change that they had nothing to do with making. So the same story is, is playing out for Native Americans on the Pacific mm. Coast in Washington, where Quinault and Quilute uh, elders and staff uh, took my Medill colleague, Patty Lowe, and I, and our students through their lands and heritage towns that are also threatened with sea level rise. And they, are, they too, are, are planning moves to higher ground. The United Nations estimates that at least 250 million people on this earth will become climate change refugees with rising seas and extreme heat. And those concrete deserts, those sidewalks and streets radiating heat in our cities are already a big problem. Illnesses from uh, climate change include heat exposure, increased pollution, contaminated floodwaters, wildfires, uh, smoke, mold, um, allergens. They're already resulting from climate change, causing mm -hmm. higher health insurance rates, greater income gaps. That's what Natasha Dijarnet, a policy analyst with the American Public Health Association, um, told students at a Medill Health Reporting Conference a few of us had organized. You know, I will never forget what she said next. She said, we are the first generation to face this, and the last generation that can do something about it. Yeah, it's powerful. Abigail, you and I have emailed before. You had mentioned assault on science. What do you mean by that? What's the impact there on environmental justice? Okay, um, the assault on science is about dismissing a body of science by suggesting it's it's based on some, you know, conspiratorial, political, or ideological agenda, and and this the assault is mind-bogglingly selective. So most people accept the complicated science of personalized cancer treatments and our near magical cell phones, for instance, and yet. Climate science still gets uh, those detractors. You know, climate change is, is simple physics, really. It, it doesn't change from red states to blue states. Um, but you wouldn't know that to talk to some politicians who seem to think that climate change, or at least climate change caused by us humans, is a little like the tooth fairy. You can believe in it if you want to, or you can play it up as a hoax, 
or just outright dismiss it. That's an assault on science. Mm. Climate change is about burning fossil fuels like gasoline, right? That, that creates carbon dioxide emissions linked to heating the atmosphere and melting ice, lots of ice. That's the cause for sea level rise starting to swamp our coastlines. People can see the ice melt on any number of NASA satellite images. And people can actually track the carbon dioxide levels on Earth going back nearly a million years because we happen to have a time machine for that. Um, the time machines are ice cores drilled from the depths of the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. Um, they're about five inches in diameter and some are two miles long. Uh, the scientists cut them in segments and then ship them off to this Fort Knox of ice cores in Colorado. Um, the ice cores show thin layers like, like tree ring layers for nearly that past million years. And scientists can extract small pockets of the ancient air from those layers, air that includes carbon dioxide, and it can be measured. So over and over again, in core after core, we see that the CO2 levels drop from just under uh, 200 parts per million during the ice ages to up to about 300 parts per million during the warm snaps, like climate we've enjoyed over the past several thousand years. And then suddenly during the industrial age, and mostly since 1975, the CO2 levels soar to about 410 parts per million today. It, that's a 36% increase in less than 50 years after nearly a million years of very predictable swings. Turn up the CO2 and you turn up the thermostat on global warming. And of course, there are critics who say, okay, sure, we are creating climate change, but we can't afford to fix it or we'll ruin the economy. Well, you mm -hmm. know, look at the staggering costs of extreme weather, uh, hurricanes, sea level rise. You ask, how can we afford not to fix it? Plus, many of us actually recognize an immense economic opportunity that, that can come with innovation to fix climate change. I see our university and Argonne National Laboratory and other universities ramping up battery research for cheaper, longer-lasting, more sustainable batteries. And that could be a big game changer. You know, think about it. Store all that extra solar and wind power and tap it from the batteries when it's dark or windless or on these hot, hot July days so we wouldn't need peak load power plants. Next generation batteries are coming and think what that'll do for electric cars too. On another front, the Institute for Sustainability and Energy at Northwestern is developing solar fuel with artificial photosynthesis sort of rubbing up the technology plants have perfected, you know, for millions and millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. Um, not going to happen? Well, I'm sure a lot of horse and buggy makers thought the same thing as they watched those funky automobiles sink axle deep in mud on those old dirt roads. It is going to happen. Innovation, mm -hmm. sustainability, and environmental justice are major highways on the map for fixing climate. I certainly hope you're right, because <laughs> right now we're not on a we're not on the right path, right? Because when you even consider the United States, yes. um, not slowing down its emissions and right. knowing that that people and countries that have contributed much less to the climate crisis will face the worst consequences. Yet, you know, our our actions are almost not excusable, right? So, yeah. But, you know, let's, let's keep that innovation going. Mm -hmm. um, 
at, at some point, it's going to hit critical mass. Well, what have you learned in your time looking at this issue of environmental justice that people are oftentimes surprised to hear? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, Greg. Um, naturally, people think environmental justice is about the environment, but it's often a surprise to people to realize this is really more about racism and poverty. Mm -hmm. um, those industrial corridors where we uh, push factories and scrapyards and pollution are areas where the poor and people of color live with facilities that other people don't want in their backyard. Uh, so climate change may be the great equalizer because while poor communities are likely to suffer most from the impacts, all of us are going to feel the punch. And those of us living near our beautiful campus in Evanston can't dump climate change on the southeast side of Chicago. It's global. I didn't want to force the issue, but I'm glad you brought up this, this concept of racism because it's, it's that, that concept that says it, it's okay to value some lives more than others and that it's okay for some people to have clean air while others struggle to breathe, right? And, and that's environmental injustice. That's every possible kind of injustice. This is relatively new, um, but our um, Office of Sustainability, Sustain in You, we recently launched a virtual book club, and I'd love to get your thoughts on if there are any publications besides yours, of course, but are there any specific books, articles, or authors that one should really read on this subject that you, you would recommend that we can bring to that group? Yeah, um, I would definitely recommend uh, Elizabeth Colbert's The Sixth Extinction. And a provocative read is uh, Yuval Noah Harari's Homo, Homo Deus, uh, A Brief History of Tomorrow, which is about overpowering death while potentially empowering uh, even more destructive human forces. Um, we need to know about the issues raised in these books if we hope to beat environmental injustice. Just, you know, just a couple of uh, really good reads. That's great. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, bring those up with the group. This is really like the last question on this topic, but it's it's sort of a, a selfish one. But and I, I struggle to answer this question because I'm asked of it. Um, but you know, what actions can Northwestern students, faculty, staff, like even community members of Evanston, Chicago, what what can we do to take? to acknowledge, to support environmental justice, but I mean, really more importantly, to, to dismantle this environmental justice issue that we're seeing across the globe? Well, one suggestion, get involved with these community environmental justice organizations and other environmental groups. Become a member. That uh, at least provides funding, but better yet, get into the action with your time and your talent. Uh, Get, it, get involved with the email blasts and the social networking needs and the posters and the events to harness change. Um, you know, they're, they're doing amazing things, some of these environmental justice organizations that uh, we talked about earlier. Another tactic, take on a challenge, like pushing for electric bus, truck, and car fleets mm -hmm. for your towns or schools and companies where you work. Most important of all, vote in November. Every mm -hmm. vote. And whether it's local zoning or national policy, we need strong leaders at all levels who will support environmental justice, take big, vigilant action to protect all of us from pollution, and will tackle climate change right now. 
before it gets catastrophic. Well, I won't ask you who you're voting for because I think I know the answer. But um, <laughs> you mentioned, um, you know, you're in the process of completing your fourth book. But besides that, you know, what's what's in store for you? What's next for you? Well, I am working um, to finish the book uh, and working with faculty from other universities this summer to launch an online Midwest Climate Summit for this fall. Mm. And as a professor and journalist, I plan to continue introducing students to um, the climate change uh, science and climate change stories and uh, uncovering uh, what needs to be done and, and the science of the crisis uh, to introduce them to diverse communities and the environmental activists working to protect those communities. We'll keep reporting. Um, we'll continue investigating. We're not letting go. Thanks. Well, I'm part of the Midwest Climate Summit planning group, and I know I recruited you, so I know. <laughs> thank, thank you for agreeing, and thank you for agreeing to participate in this podcast. And with that, we are nearing the end of our time, unfortunately, but any, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with today before we say goodbye? Well, thank you for all your great questions. Um, they give me a lot to think about, and I hope they give every listener a lot to think about. Um, one last thought, get out there. We've got to stop environmental injustice now, and we've got to stop climate change now. Get going on one, and we'll be tackling both. Good. Well, on that note, thank you for sharing your thoughts and perspectives with us, Abigail. It's been enlightening and an absolute pleasure. Well, this has been Conversations with Sustain and You, a Sustain and You podcast series with Northwestern Leadership. This was installment two of three on the topic of environmental justice and the intersection of sustainability, equity, and environmental health. Join us for installment three of Conversations with Sustain and You on the topic of environmental justice, and we'll speak to Medill Professor Patty Love. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.